Moby.co. This is the flagship pod, a weekly live podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces powering the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this week, uh, it is Jerome Powell going full evil mode week, ladies and gentlemen. We got some encouraging news at the start of the week with the CPI coming in, you know, nicer than expected, but then Jerome Powell came out the next day and basically spooked the market into a pretty big sell-off for the week with just all of the mayhem from... The, ter- the Fed's terminal rate going up a little bit less than expected, but, you know, rates being raised throughout next year as opposed to, you know, kind of peaking next year. So uh, to help me kind of understand why that was such a huge shock to the market and such a huge hit to the market, as always, I am joined by C- CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co, Justin Kramer. Justin, man, help me unpack this. Why did the market finally turn on a dark, dark Powell, dude? Yeah, there's a a lot to unpack. We saw a lot of data start to come out regarding the CPI, the PPI, you know, just any measure of inflation. The market's been paying attention to it month over month. Uh, And over the last month, it looks, you know, like we've finally been getting some data points that suggest that we are at the peak of this. And so how that's been interpreted by the marketplace so far is, okay, inflation is starting to peak. That means that The Fed will stop raising rates soon. They'll slow down their pace of raising rates. And ultimately, the the predictions and hopes were that by midway next year, uh, we would actually be on the path towards a decrease in interest rates. Um, And that's why the market really has been rallying over the last month or two. Um, Yesterday, we had Jerome Powell come talk. They raised rates like 50 basis points, just like everyone was expecting, uh, which was fine. But then he scared the the shit out of the markets, more or less, by saying that he doesn't anticipate in 2023 that rates will come down at all. In fact, he said in 2023, we should not expect any sort of decrease, and that would not happen until 2024, which was not the consensus thinking whatsoever. Um, And so that really, over the last 24 to 48 hours, have sent the markets just spiraling downwards. As most investors thought, again, rates would be coming down at some point next year. And while it is always subject to change, the latest thinking is that that is no longer the case. And if that is no longer the case, we are likely going to be going into a deep recessionary period at some point next year as more corporate earnings dry up, as more people get fired. And as we just have a really strong slowdown in the overall economy as rates continue to raise and stay elevated. And it's one of those things, too, where that kind of statement isn't policy yet. Like, Fed policy isn't super set in stone. So it's one of those things that just subject to change, right? Like, the the market is obviously always going to react to Jerome Powell, but he has pivoted before. Is there anything to suggest that he will stick to this plan? Is it set in stone? Or is it one of those things where this could be variable as we th- see things potentially improve on the supply side in the beginning of 2023? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely variable. Like he's come out and he's, you know, they've obviously changed things. But the biggest thing for the Fed really as investors to watch for is just their tone. Um, they What's more important, what they say is how they say it. So as long as they are cautioning and, and saying and repeating themselves, that's the stance that Jerome Powell and the current uh, state of the Fed ultimately wants to take. So while that is no, you know, by no means effective what will happen, if they're saying that they really want that to happen, they've shown that they will have a consistent policy to overall bring down inflation towards their 2% number um, and that they'll do whatever it takes to get there. 
their stance was, yes, we might cause a recession by doing this, but there'll be an even bigger recession, an even bigger problem if we don't solve inflation. And that's the reason they're doing it. I think ultimately what we need to come to grips with is there's not going to be a deflationary period by all. If you guys are expecting prices to come back down, you know, I don't think that will happen. I think prices, unfortunately, are now going to remain elevated going forward. The biggest thing that they want to do now is that prices increase at a predictable level at that 2% level. So, for example, I'm making this up. If a carton of eggs a year ago was $4 and today it's 6 as investors, as just consumers, we shouldn't expect it to go back down, but we also shouldn't expect it next year to go to $8. It should be at a steady 2% increase. So that's the biggest thing they're trying to do is not bring prices back down, but just bring future prices in line. You know, I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere close to a deflationary environment unless all of a sudden the world just more or less collapsed because they put us into this huge, huge recession that takes years to get out of. But I think that is the biggest thing to take away right now is the Fed will do whatever it takes to get inflation under control. They are still a very, very long way away from that. Things are increasing slowly um, in terms of month over month increases relative to last year, but they still have a ways to go. And until that slows down and until, you know, we have a better outlook from companies on corporate go forward earnings, 2023, at least the first half is going to continue to be very volatile. And then we might get some sort of price recovery in the back half of next year over the summer. But again, that's why we need to be looking at specific sectors you know, the market obviously did awful this year, but energy crushed, industrials crushed. You know, if you looked in the right places, you actually could have done well. And so, you know, over the last decade, putting your money in the index was the right strategy. Today, you can still make money. You just need to know where to invest. So being educated and informed is just more important than it's ever been. And that's the main thing you have to kind of deal with in, your, in the stock media, because for the past six years or so, it has just been invest in an ETF and watch money just come piling in on the backs of a truly, truly ludicrous S&P 500, right? So we've had, we've had this strong period of super easy money, and now we're watching companies actually have to be companies now. And so you're watching, you know, the more defensive picks do really well. Yes, industrials are doing well. Pharma is crushing in certain sectors, especially if you, if you want to fight cancer, now's the time with all the technology that's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's pretty wild seeing how we're applying everything we learned to cancer itself, right? Like there's, there's a lot to do, but the main thing of course is we're really concerned about the overall macro environment and Jerome Powell just basically announced the recession more or less with his, like the hawk, most hawkish he's ever been. So go team him. Not really sure why he wasn't going for more of a soft land landing stance, but I guess, you know, you have to tamp down the expectations, even with rates going down uh, rates being raised at a slower rate, like 75 basis points was an absolute sledgehammer to the market, but dude's just got to fight labor for whatever reason. And just watching this kind of reverberate across the market, Justin, is this like, are we just going to keep switching from growth to value? Are we stuck talking about boring companies for the next six months? Or are there, are there other things we can be watching out for in terms of companies learning to live with inflation? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. Uh, if you think about investing over the last... I have to do um, research in another compressor company. I'm going to die, dude. Yeah, I know. It's tough. But if you think about truly what investing is, it's finding companies that are growing well, financially doing well, and ultimately investing in companies that can continue to grow from a pure business perspective. It doesn't matter if you're selling electric vehicles or you're selling trash cans. If you are growing and it's a good business on paper, 
That's what investing historically should be. Over the last few years, that has taken a transition to, hey, I'm going to shift away from good, boring companies and invest my money in cool emerging technologies that are going to change the world over the next decade, which is the case always. Like We need to be investing in those things, but that is not what the masses have historically been investing in and should be investing in. Finding companies with strong cash flows that are making money, that have competitive advantages over their, you know, the rest of the marketplace, that is what investing is. And so a large part of that is, yes, finding value companies or companies that are undervalued relative to what they should be worth and realizing that before the rest of the market does and ultimately seeing those companies appreciate over their short-term opportunity over the next few years. That's what investing you know, for value investing, for traditional looking at a P&L type investing is. When you're talking about investing in, you know, the next generational technology, you get away from the numbers and start talking about the technology more. And that's a whole different classification of investor. And so, again, to to kind of reiterate on this and, and draw this more narrowly, you know, Investing in boring companies, nothing's wrong with that. If you if you look at some of the richest people in the world, you know, oil isn't exciting, but a lot of the princes in the Middle East are richer than anyone from doing a historically more boring business providing the world with energy. So there's a lot of sectors out there, a lot of companies that we've been looking at over the last few years that are are really undervalued and they've started to get more, you know, credit and recognition over the last year or two. But yes, over the next let's call it six to 12 months, those companies should continue to outperform companies that are generating strong cash flow, are growing, and aren't just burning all the capital they have. You know, in a time where capital is more expensive than ever because rates are high, it's just, it's really tough to sustain that over the long run. And so we're going to see a lot of companies crash and burn. That's why we saw Carvana, you know, down 99% this year. It just, money isn't cheap. And so growing isn't cheap. And so you have to find the companies that are sustainable and don't need outside capital. And that's really one of the biggest themes we're going to watch for. Absolutely. But another really important thing about our philosophy audience is we're not just saying blanket, just go buy every industrial stock you see. Because what happens with these very defensive picks, like usually healthcare and pharma and usually industrials over a long term scale kind of underperform like more growth plays. So the main thing you have to keep in mind is that the time horizon we always talk about cuts both ways. Like we're not just saying buy all your sell all of your apple stock and buy whatever compressor company or anything because what will happen is in three to five years the market conditions will improve apple can turn on its flywheel effects again and absolutely skyrocket and on a five-year adjusted basis uh, apple will outperform say a bunch of these industrial picks so our main thing that we're trying to do as we look through these boring picks and sift through the more the defensive options like you can get a good six-month return off of basically any industrial stock right now but we want to find companies Companies that have flywheel effects that can, you know, play in that uh, eight to twelve percent, you know, upward trajectory range year over year over year, as opposed to, you know, doing like eight eight percent, twelve percent, fifteen percent this year, and then getting knocked back down to the five percent as capital flees defensive plays and goes back to offensive stuff. Come, you know, end of 2023, beginning of 2024, if this is not an extended recession. So keep that in mind as well. You want to find companies with those emerging technologies or consolidating industries in a way that give them a strong opportunity for five-year growth 
as a defensive play, which makes it even harder, and I guarantee you, even more boring and even more frustrating, the amount of companies we've had to just kind of, like, get all the way up to the finish line of research and have to knock off because they're not going to be good, say, three to five years from now, has been... Uh, exhausting to say the least, right? But to quit complaining because that's literally what our job is, Justin. Let's get into seeing how this is affecting the rest of the market. Uh, crypto is hating every single aspect of this too. Bitcoin's finally fallen beneath 17k again. Binance is looking a little bit shaky. How is this? How is this playing out within the in crypto as well? Are we just seeing more people leave risk on assets as they're just saying, okay, there's we're going to be in crypto winter for a while now? Like, is this still the FTX fallout, or is this the stock market knocking crypto oh, down even crypto. further? Yeah, so if you take the FTX fought away from it, like let's break this into, you know, part one of the year, which has been the first 11 months, and then part two, which is going to be the last two to four weeks from the FTX fallout. So part one, regardless of what happened in part two, we have crypto, you know, plummeting with the rest of the stock market. Turns out it's extremely correlated to the stock market as it's a risky asset. So as investors want to invest in less and less risk, naturally risky assets like crypto, like, you know, the NASDAQ tech stocks growth names are going to get hit. Just a part of, you know, natural cycles, nothing inherently wrong with crypto in general. Um, so I just want to make that clear distinction. We've seen crashes in the past. We saw crypto crash in 2017. We, we've seen previous ones and it's, you know, so far recovered because there hasn't been any fundamental issues with the underlying technology. So that's really, you know, part one. Part two is what we are seeing now to be potentially one of the biggest Ponzi schemes, more or less of all time. Um, and so obviously we're not going to dive too deep into what happened because I'm sure everyone here, uh, whether in the live version or the recording version, has been beaten to death with it over the last few weeks. But effectively, the new CEO had come into FTX and when he was on uh, the stand at Congress recently, he was like, this isn't a crypto thing. This is just a good old fashioned case of embezzlement and fraud. And so this could have happened in any industry. It's not due to the nature of crypto. Money, were, money was coming into the exchange and they were taking it out on the other side and it wasn't regulated. Um, so it's an interesting kind of scenario where it happened in an industry that is highly irregulated uh, and it was based in the Bahamas, so it was easier to get away with. But it was nothing to do with like the fundamental technology of crypto. So when I look at this FTX incident, what I view it as in the short term is definitely a headwind to crypto. It's going to ultimately put less trust into the marketplace as it should. It should be regulated. But over the long run, it now, I think, legitimizes it more than anything because they realized there was so much money lost, so many people hurt that Congress and you know regulators in the U.S. have to do something about it. So if they have to do something about it, eventually more regulation will come, more transparency, and ultimately that brings a more efficient market for us as investors, which ultimately is good for the long-term price appreciation of crypto. So when I look at kind of the overall landscape, you know, our view on crypto hasn't really changed with this FTX incident, especially with the market down. Once markets rebound, rates start peaking, start then decreasing at some point, you know, if not next year anymore in 2024, and the rest of the market goes up, crypto, I believe, will fundamentally go up with it. I think a lot of names will crash and burn and never recover, but, you know, the big names like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, will eventually recover. It seems crazy to think that, um, given what's going on, but... That's what. That's just how market cycles work. 
So we are still believers. We actually just put out a pretty good note on it today in our site, um, talking about a little bit more in depth, uh, long-term price targets, implications, why we think it's doing well, institutional adoption, a whole host of things I won't you know, talk you guys to death with today. Um, but effectively, we still believe in it over the long run. And audience, of course, if you want to get more access to that research, if you're on the recorded version of this podcast, you can head over to moby.co slash go and sort of get into more of our funnel about what our actual like in-depth research is. That's live on the site now. Check it out there. Either way, Justin, let's get into more of that breaking news territory, Ben. We don't really like talking more about super, super up to the minute. We're very much much more analytical, and so speculating is kind of tough, but we're seeing a lot of troubling signs at a Binance uh, over the last week. Um, according to several research firms, it looks like over $3 billion in funds have been withdrawn from the platform. They halted withdrawals of USDC a little bit earlier in the week, and now a kind of new <laughs> wild thing is that their um, their auditor, the people sort of like doing their proof of reserve the Mazars group out of France is pausing all work with crypto.com and Binance and the BNB token has fallen 6% since then as we see a little bit more like sell pressure on it um, I know a lot of our audience is currently staking on Binance because they had very very attractive rates for staking crypto like the value of crypto goes down but you'll still receive more crypto tokens just by holding your stuff on Binance um, should we be thinking about getting our money off of exchanges while this volatility plays out or is, is Binance in a too big to fail type situation? No, I mean, no company is too big to fail. Uh, even outside of like the crypto space, dating back further, Lehman Brothers went out of business seemingly overnight due to the subprime mortgage crisis. You know, companies go out of business all the time. No one is ever too big to fail. I mean, they've literally made movies on it. Uh, and then you take Binance, which is a foreign entity based in China. Again, obviously not a ton of oversight there. And yeah, I think your your money is always at risk being on an exchange, something that isn't regulated by the US, even if it is to a certain extent, it's still at risk. And that's why over the last few years, we've always been advocating for if you're not actively trading the crypto and you just want to store it, you should find some sort of cold storage or third party device where it doesn't matter if the company goes out of business because it's a wallet that's you know inherent of any company's ongoing business operations. So that's really the the biggest thing if you want to be totally safe and secure and know that your crypto is actually yours. Whereas on a lot of these exchanges, you know, it's held as collateral. And ultimately if something happens, you know, there really isn't a ton of recourse. So Binance is probably, yeah, one of the biggest is the biggest uh, exchange in the world. And so if that one goes on under, you know, really spells some bad news for the rest of the exchanges. So there's probably less risk, but by no means are, are they safe. So if your assets are being held there, you're nervous about companies going out of business and you losing your capital, putting it on a wallet, even just to hold it temporarily is not a bad thing to do. We do it. Um, it it's really just a great way to be secure uh, and, and kind of increase your overall security. Yeah. And it's one of those things when you look at it as well, like, we're in crypto winter right now, and I know a lot of our audience is feeling frustrated by the the crypto crash. A lot of people, you know, were jumping in in 2020, in 2021 during the huge run up. And um, just so you understand, audience, this is kind of an old statistic, but people keep forgetting about it. Uh, if you look at all Bitcoin wallets, which you can do because the blockchain's public, over 51% of all wallets 
currently have less value than the value they had when they bought into Bitcoin, i.e. Uh, the majority of Bitcoin holders at this time are bag holders. We have all, we're, we're all technically underwater. And so your main goal in crypto is to keep it a very small part of your portfolio and just to, you know, spot buy and hold, right? Find moments of weakness where you can add to if you want to. Maybe not do that as much now as we sort of watch more fallout hit. I don't know how low Bitcoin can go because uh, there's, Lord knows what the next sort of like bit of price action is. Or we get a great CPI report and it sent the market skyrocketing even more with hopes that Jerome Powell won't actually go full, you know, Darth Powell, right? So Bitcoin is just so reactive as an asset. So yes, it's 16K while we are recording this. It could be back up to 17 by the time we actually upload this on Monday. We'll have to see. So the main rule, that, number one rule is don't overreact, right? And, you know, find a safer place to keep your reserves during this period of volatility, particularly for exchanges until we see a little bit more confidence in where exchanges are going. Regardless, Justin, as we kind of get through this, this is also our, technically, I think our last episode for the year too, right? So kind of take me more through your 2023 outlook. So we're, we're looking at six months of pain and maybe six months of recovery. Um, is there anything that kind of, that can mess with that? Like the Russia situation is getting a little bit more interesting as Bakhmut gets more ready to sort of, like it's the worst battle that's happened in this whole thing, but it's looking more and more in Ukrainian, in Ukraine's favor, right? With, with that war potentially finding some conclusion in the next six months as well, is that going to be one of those events that kind of like sends the market skyrocketing or is that too far gone given just how much damage has happened to the world food supply with that situation? I mean, there are definitely, you know, if there is some sort of resolution there that is deemed acceptable by, you know, governing entities as well as the market, there definitely could be some sort of relief rally we'll see from that. I think what's also really important past that is to see, you know, post that conflict, what happens with China, what happens with the U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, that could potentially bring a new dynamic uh, into the markets uh, that could be even larger than what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, hard to believe. Um, so that's something that outside of, you know, the Russia specific conflict, just conflicts in general, those are things that we need to be very aware of, because at any point, you know, Taiwan makes a ton of the world's semiconductors. If for any reason there's a slowdown or a shortage there, you're going to see every single industry also slow down, which the market is not pricing in by any effects. And we're not saying that's going to happen. But again, things to be aware for in 2023. Post that, again, it's going to be very macro driven. The Fed has shown that they ultimately rule the market. Uh, you can't, don't, don't try and fight the Fed. Don't try and invest against them. The market will react accordingly because debt rules the world. Companies, you know, fund a lot of their operations on debt, becomes more expensive, they get hurt. There's, there's really not much they can do about it. Um, so that's ultimately the, the thing we need to watch for, biggest theme from a macro perspective in 2023. And we'll continue to look, um, you know, company and industry specific to see what can do well. And we've been continuing to recommend the names that we like um, and have some pretty good relief rallies in the back half of this year so far with a lot of our industrial picks, healthcare picks, uh, and energy pick and utility names have done, you know, really, really well uh, over this year, which has been really nice to see in a, in a pretty down year. And then past that, uh, I think just some bigger themes to watch for um, in 2023 and beyond are going to be the continue ongoing electrification and push towards alternative energies, uh, namely, hard, not hard to mention, Tesla right now down $500 billion this year in market cap. Uh, once Elon figures out this kind of whole Twitter debacle, 
gets a new CEO in place, fixes some of the problems. Uh, I know he sold off some stock recently to fund the operations. Uh, they'll be fine in the long run. Twitter, I have no idea, but Tesla will be fine once Elon focuses his time and energy back on that. This is just a short-term headwind that ultimately, you know, no one really wants him getting involved with. But, you know, at the end of the day, he he has. So once he gets back more involved in Tesla, uh, they have a real monopoly on the industry. They are absolutely massive. They're the only profitable EV maker because they're so vertically integrated in the world before tax credits. Um, they have massive operations globally. They're opening up more factories, lowering their price points. They're going to start getting into mining and ultimately like really just creating everything in-house and mitigating any supply chain issues. So we're seeing a slowdown just in overall EV demand because of the global economy pulling back. But I mean, if you're betting on long-term electrification adoption of cars, again, Tesla is still by far and away the best company in the space. And if anything during this time period is bridging the gap between them and the rest of the competition even more as they become more vertically inter like uh, integrated and streamline their operations. So that will be a big theme for next year, the continuing just like ongoing of their supply chain. Um, I know we talked about just more in energy like nuclear fusion. It's great what happened. That is clean, renewable energy forever. But by no means is there going to be real like consumer applications or applications down at the the actual energy grid level anytime soon. We're talking decades. Decades. Yeah, still. it's positive outlook. Great. Like we've we've successfully done it. We knew according to the math we could, but now that we've done it, it's a different thing. But I mean, yeah, to your point, it's decades away from actually being applicable. So awesome for a science perspective. Awesome long term. But in the short run for sustainable energy, global warming, all the things and issues we have today, it really has no impact. Especially um, since the time horizon for global warming is on a 20-year time scale and scaling that kind of nuclear fusion reaction would require leaps and bounds in the next five to 10 years. Like it's still, and it's, it's actually in defiance of certain math as well. So it's still a gigantic, gigantic leap forward. It's just scaling it is going to be extremely difficult so really excited for it but you know not from a market perspective at least until you know the 2030s 2040s probably yeah and to your point global warming is on a, a long-term time scale if you're thinking about solving it today we need to be doing things that like are impactful today like electrification is a great step but it's still the amount of like production and waste it needs to to create these batteries ultimately is like just as taxing as some of the oil is on top of it. And then you talk about like, how do you make electricity? Like you need oil. The world still runs on oil very, very much. So if you want to save money and invest in some of these longer term technologies, the best way to fight global warming and some of these issues today are simple things that, you know, people aren't talking about. Stop building as much homes on the water. There wouldn't be as much destruction. Um, like that recent hurricane down in Florida. If you look at the population of, that area of Naples and surrounding areas 10 years ago versus today versus 20 years ago, the amount of houses and ultimately billions of dollars of damage that costs due to that. You know, if, if we're not surrounding ourselves and putting ourselves at risk by putting ourselves near, you know, hurricane areas or, or lower or, or high rising sea tides, we can save that money and invest it in, in bigger technologies like nuclear fusion, like, um, you know, continued electrification. So, these are these are much longer term themes. They're not going to help global warming. They're not going to help, you know, on from a PL perspective, investors anytime soon. But 
this is like post 2023, the big stuff. Again, over the short run, I think looking at Tesla, looking at the electrification vertical, like those short term things are, are going to be impactful. The Fed will be impactful. Continuing global conflict will be impactful. Those are, are really going to be our, our big themes for next year and just continued disruption uh, in boring industries. Again, those are the things we're looking for. Companies that are changing the way, you know, historically uh, just ignored industries operate. Those, those are That's what you want to be looking for. Disruption at sustainable operational efficiencies. Exactly. We didn't even get into it. We are already at time. We didn't even get to how all of the new AI shifts are going to change the market because there's just so much happening so quickly with things like ChatGPT and how that's you know, kicking things off. Regardless, the, the main theme is going to be looking forward throughout 2023. It's one of those weird meta things where we're looking forward to looking forward, but there's a lot of generational shifts in technology that are happening right, happening right now. In healthcare, the way that mRNA and antibody treatments are revolutionizing how we treat certain very complex diseases, how AI is going to completely change how technology operates and all of the various automated funnels we have, how nuclear fusion, hydrogen power, and various other forms are going to be revolutionized that's going to be gigantic next year as well. So 2023 is very much a year of looking towards the 2030s. Regardless, uh, Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at uh, Co. As always, it's been really solid having this year of conversations with you again. It's been a it's been a tough year. We have been live week by week through this downturn. Any final thoughts from you before we go ahead and read the credits here, man? Anything else we should be looking forward to as we think about this year and move into next year? No, I think we I think we really covered it. Uh, to Peter's point, we're not going to have a show for the next two weeks because it is downtime. There's not much to talk about. We will spare everyone just the, the ongoing mayhem of the markets, and we'll regroup in the new year and talk about what's to come. Uh, I think the biggest thing into year end is uh, you know if there are extreme down positions, tax loss harvesting, harvesting those gains to to lower your taxable income and your taxable investments is a great thing to do. Um, going into the end of the year, preparing for next year, you know, reducing expenses outside of your investing, just overall budgeting. These are key themes, you know, as just overall consumers that we'd want to start identifying and acting in. Again, if next year is as bad as a lot of people think it could be, getting ahead on this stuff now, minimizing how much taxes you're paying, increasing your savings, doing all the defensive things going into a recessionary period is is going to be super important. So. Highly recommend that going to the end of the year. And then, you know, as January kicks off next year, we'll have a, I think, a much better understanding of where the world is going to go over the next, you know, let's call it six to 12 months. Exactly. That's that's really important too. As we begin to see, like we're beginning, we're beginning troubling signs about retail. But I'm excited to see exactly how retail does this holiday season because it will be very telling for the next six months. If we go through these next six months of pain and consumer spending still finds a way to stay strong, we might have some opportunities to win here. If not, it's going to be really hard to say. Regardless, audience, thank you so much for sticking with us through this. You know, really tough year to be talking about the markets. Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Mobi.co, as always, really appreciate your perspective as well. Just so you know, audience, this podcast is produced hosted and voiced by me, Peter Starr. All the intellectual value from this comes from our analyst team led by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder here at Moby.co. If you have any questions for us, you can hit us up at hello at Moby.co or, you know, there'll be actually posts around. You can leave us comments below as well. Find us over on Instagram and TikTok as well. Regardless, audience, we really appreciate your time. Uh, but for now, I think that's a good place to leave it. So as always, we'd like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much. <laughs>